Welcome to Path to PMF, a podcast by Lightspeed, bringing to you a treasure trove of learnings and insights from a founder's journey to finding a product market fit. Hi everyone, I'm Harsha Kumar, a partner at Lightspeed. Joining me today is my dear friend and co-host Anshumani Rudra, who's a product manager at Google. Our guest today is Gagan Biani, who first started up when he was in high school when he built the largest speech and debate institute in the country. He then co-founded Udemy, an education behemoth. He's worked at Lyft, built and shut down Sprig, and now he's the co-founder of Maven. Phew, that's a long list. I'm looking forward to an exciting discussion. Great to have you here, Gagan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Harsha and Anshumani. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So let's jump in. Let's jump in to our first question. So Gagan, you became an entrepreneur fairly early in life, right? And it's, it's special that you're now on your third startup. Uh, but the journey to this point has not been a straight line. Now, something that you've spoken about is how founders and how people who work in the tech ecosystem need to have superpowers, right? Now, what is the superpower you think you've had right from the beginning, right from the get-go? And what are some of the things you've had to develop over the last so many years? I think from day one, I had a few valuable skills. One, I would say, is that I was um, relentless from day one. Always had sort of a relentless view towards goal setting. And um, I think that's really valuable because... Uh, resilience and relentlessness are are very very important uh, as a founder. Um, not giving up, essentially, and uh, I think that was coupled with an ambition and an understanding of ambition that I think was very very valuable. Setting, you know, really far out goals is also something that I think is quite valuable as a startup founder and being able to understand the path to them and having some vision for them. Things that I had to learn along the way. Uh, I think a startup superpower is certainly management and managing teams. And I don't think I started off my career in without with any experience. In fact, I generally don't think that any first-time managers are very good. I think people think they might be good as first-time managers because people like them. People liking you does not make you a good manager, really. Honestly, it's it's a total it's a total BS metric. What makes you a good manager is someone who gets the best out of their teams. And of course, loyalty and liking people, uh, you know, affinity for you is an important factor there for sure. But um I think generally management is a very learned skill and something that I had to learn over time. The other challenges are, or the other things that I learned over time, I think over time I learned to uh, control and manage my emotions better and just be more calm and have more perspective. Startups are extremely stressful. And so managing stress is a pretty valuable, valuable skill. Um, yeah, that, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. Now, talk a little bit about what helped with developing relentlessness so early in life. You said that's something that sort of stayed with you right from day one. Uh, what do you think there's something specific to the way you were raised or, you know, something in your childhood which sort of which helped build that? As a lot of good things. <laughs> but, 
you know, I had Indian parents. Indian parents are crazy. They like, they push you, they push you hard. And when you don't get through something, uh, they push you to keep going. So I would say that I, I did, I had dealt with that a fair bit as a child and, and sort of surmounted a lot of challenges. I also think that you have to have some level of success as a child in surmounting challenges. So mm -hmm. I was lucky in that my, my mother was quite good at helping me navigate, you know, I played competitive chess when I was, uh, when I was very young in, in my elementary, in my grade school era. And in that era, I had a lot of challenges in, you know, dealing with, you know, losing, you know, I lost a fair bit in the beginning, I'm sure. And then of course, over time winning most, but then losing once in a while is still, still kind of a big deal. So I dealt with a lot of, uh, um, situations where I wasn't the best at something and then had to still keep pushing on and try to become the best. And I think that helped a lot. What was originally your definition of BMF and did that change through the many experiences you've had uh, to now sort of with Maven, right? So um, how did you think about BMF early on? So let's say as a first time founder, what were the mistakes uh, that, that you think you made as you thought about product market fit versus how you think about it today? We started Udemy before that term was popular. <laughs> so we did not use the term product market fit and didn't know what it was at that time. So honestly, I didn't have an early definition that I was okay. using. In fact, at Udemy, somewhat naively, our only goal was traction. So back then, you know, 2009, it's not that long ago, but in the internet era, it's a, it's a lifetime ago. And back then, the, the thing that any investor or any startup dogma would say is just get traction. Just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. As long as you yeah. keep growing 20% a month, you're doing well. And yeah. so our goal every month was just to grow 20% a month. We never thought about whether or not users liked our product. We did not give a shit, honestly. We didn't care. Uh, in fact, we were raising money for our Series A, and uh, I, we got pretty far with this one fund uh, that I think eventually passed because we couldn't answer what they thought was a very simple question, which was when people buy Udemy courses, how many people finish the courses? And uh, I said, I have, I have no idea. We, we, we didn't even track it. So we had no data yeah. on it at all. Yeah. And that would be a critical product market fit question that you, you would think it was a critical product market fit question. Of course, I think today we can all say Udemy has product market fit and so do video-based courses, and yet their completion rate is super low. So actually, funny enough, it would have been perhaps uh, a bad thing if we had spent too much time on that metric. Mm -hmm. That's kind of funny, even though today I think I'm quite obsessed with it. So uh, it's like... <laughs> I, for better or for worse. How do you how do you think about it today, though? And I I think from a first principle standpoint, I completely agree with you, right? With with a video uh, course, you would think completion rate would help you define BMS, uh, and it would have been the wrong choice, perhaps. Uh, now, how do you think about it? As you think about Maven, how would you de define BMS for for Maven? Yeah. Maven is different from Udemy in that we are almost entirely focused on instructors. So we are not trying to 
we're we are going to build a marketplace that will happen on Maven, but we're start. We believe the amount of software to create a good cohort based course is quite complex, and so uh, we're starting by just targeting instructors like Anshumani, who's who's an instructor on Maven, and. So we definitely do not have product market fit yet, as Anshumani can probably tell you in terms of using the product. We're still building things and figuring it out. I would define product market fit for us as instructors raving about our product, our service offering, and telling others about it. And right now, instructors rave about cohort-based courses and they tell them, oh, if you're new to cohort-based courses, you should check out Maven. I think that's a little different. I'd love to get to the point where they don't just talk about cohort-based courses and how successful it is and how much they can engage with their audience and how much students love them and how much money they can make. But rather, I'd love to see them actually talk about how Maven, the, Maven itself as a product makes it so much easier to run these courses and manage them. And that's what we're all focused on right now at Maven. So we're not really focused on top line numbers at all and not trying to grow the GMV or anything like that. We're just focused on having instructors who absolutely love and rave about the product. I feel like, you know, you being sort of like a repeat founder, I feel like there's there's a little bit of a liberty that you can take with these decisions, right? Where you can say, hey, I am not pushing for growth right now. I'm only I'm pushing for a certain things that that I that that I think are right for my product. But there might be yeah. founders out there who are very uncomfortable with this phase, right? Where they're saying, hey, if I don't grow, I can't raise money. And if I can't raise money, I mean, forget about future growth and success of my company and my dream, right? Like how does a founder then handle this phase in your opinion, right? Where investors and being an investor myself, I'm telling you that we're all saying growth, growth, growth. And if I'm seeing growth, I'm going to jump on it. Um, and the founder is thinking, but product first, right? How do I, why should I chase growth right now? How, how do you balance these two things in your opinion? Yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. Uh, we are very lucky. You know, we raised multiple rounds of financing without a ton of traction. We did have, we did have you know, we're doing multiple millions of dollars this year in course sales. So it's not like, it's not like we have no traction, <laughs> um, but it's not an important part of the story. Our investors are not asking us how much are we growing month over month. They're asking us exactly the question I just told you, which is mm -hmm. how much do instructors love you? And are you tracking that? And et cetera. Yeah. So it's hard for first-time founders and really anyone who doesn't have a top-tier fund like a, like a Andreessen Horowitz, who I think have been really, really supportive in first round. My answer would be that success is not driven by whether or not investors invest in you. Success is driven by whether you find product market fit. And so yeah. you might have to play the game of investors a little bit in order to get them to keep investing. Uh, however... You have to balance that. And that's the challenge of just being a founder. You have to balance that with actually getting to the to product market fit. Yeah. It tends to be a little bit more of a intuition-based game. Um, you have to I think that that investors who look solely at growth 
will do so at their own peril. And over the course of the next, you know, decade, frankly, I think that that will change over time. And I think that that's probably to some extent where India lags a little bit behind um, Silicon Valley in this mindset from what I can see. Um, and and so, I mean, I, everybody lags behind Silicon Valley on this mindset, I would say, because this is a new thing, not focused on growth in the first, you know, uh, two years of a company is a new thing, even in Silicon Valley, right? It's, a, yeah. it's a, like only a few investors think this way. Yeah. So you have to balance it. But, you know, growth is one of the best yeah. signs of product market fit. So it's mm. like, you also yeah. shouldn't do the opposite. And I think that for most people, growth is a good source of truth. So it's a better source of truth yeah. than satisfaction, for most people, because most people are not good at being critical towards satisfaction. Most people would look at Maven's success right now yeah. and our numbers and say, we absolutely have product market fit. We are growing extremely well. We have yeah. instructors who do rave about us. And I made a nuance about how they rave about us earlier, but that nuance is going to be lost on most people anyways. And so I would say growth is still probably the best true metric because you cannot argue with growth. Growth is either there or it's not. Whereas product market fit and customer satisfaction is very arguable. It can You can totally convince yourself that you have it when you don't. That's extremely common. And less common, you can convince, you don't, convince yourself you don't have it when you do. Uh, that's yeah. a lot less common, but that's also possible. That's not yeah. true with growth. Yeah. So I, I think if I have to summarize what you said, I would say... And then correct me if I'm wrong, right? Because I think this is an important question for a lot of our uh, listeners today. I think that growth is probably the most objective way to measure whether you have PMF. Uh, but until you get there, you do need to play the investor game now, however you play it, right? And maybe at some point uh, during this discussion, we'll get to that as well and, and hear your thoughts on how how perhaps you played that game with Udemy. You've written about it extensively, so that'll be useful. Um, but is that is that is that more or less how you would put it? Yeah, yeah. And there's a great yeah. question in the chat that growth can be deceptive. Uh, gr growth can be deceptive. You can have unsustainable growth, right? That That's yeah. very real. So, um, but it's important to recognize that growth is deceptive in a way that will always reveal itself, whereas product yeah. market fit is much, it's much more murky than that. Yeah. And the deception of growth is, is something that you should be aware of. Uh, but sometimes you just need to get to the next fundraising milestone and then you can deal with it later. And that's that's how Udemy did it. I mean, and that's how lots of companies do it. They just get it to a certain point and then deal with it afterwards in terms of, you know, if you have a leaky yeah. funnel in a certain area, you just fix it over time. And I think yeah. that is totally an acceptable strategy as well. Fair, fair point, Gagan. Thank you so much for elaborating. Gagan, uh, Harsha mentioned MVP, and it's, it's it's a framework you've sort of written about, spoken about a lot, right? Minimal, minimum viable testing, as opposed to a building a minimum viable product, and it does put uh, it does put the onus on the creators to really think through what they are building. So, just for everyone's sort of sake here, all, all the listeners' sake, if you could just dig a little deeper into how you think about MVP and sort of what it stands for and how it has helped you in making decisions. Yeah. So a lot of times when people think about minimum viable, MVT is very much a reaction to the way that people use minimum viable products today. 
So mm-hmm. to be clear, I'm sure there are people who would just be like, yo, your MVT framework is just how I do MVPs, fine, but most people don't. And uh, so the real lesson of the MVT framework in my mind and the breakthrough I had was that you can test certain aspects of your value proposition and certain aspects of product market fit without testing everything else. And that is a huge breakthrough because it's much easier and clearer. It's more objective to test a specific hypothesis than it is to test a general hypothesis. And we all know this from, you know, eighth grade, eighth standard science, right? I mean, you, if you're going to test whether or not, you know, plants grow better in sun or they grow better in, you know, in, in rain, uh, which is not a very smart test, but anyways, if you're going to test something like whether the, in the shade, sorry, in the yeah. shade versus in sun, right? And then that's a very good test because there are plenty of plants that do better in, in either situation. You know, the uh, that you have to control for all of the other variables in order to test that well. So you want to make sure you're using the same plant because that would be ridiculous if you weren't. Uh, You want to make sure that they have the same amount of water. You want to make sure that the soil composition is the same. You want to make sure the pot size is the same. Like everything needs to be the same. And then you just put one plant in sun and one plant in shade. Well, that's what MBTs are. MBTs are taking a specific area of an entire hypothesis and figuring out if they are going to be successful, if you're right or not. MVPs are kind of like putting a plant out there and just saying, oh, I'm going to try everything I can to make this plant survive and let's hope I'm right. And that's what the difference is because you're not controlling for enough other variables. You're not ignoring enough other variables. You're putting all the variables into one soup and then tasting it and seeing if it turns out well. And when it comes to startups, there is no other way to finally be right. You can't be right solely via MBTs. But you can dramatically increase your accuracy on your MVP or your first version of your product if you run specific tests, because then you learn specific lessons. And those specific lessons are clearer and they're more objective. So in the case of Maven, I learned whether or not a CBC was a valuable course for students. That was like a specific test I ran. And I saw the... Even with a shitty CBC, like I didn't know what I was doing. All I did, honestly, was lecturing like this. I just did five lectures in a row where I just lectured and engaged with the audience. And the engagement, and I was watching the engagement in the in the Zoom, and I still had 70% of people from lecture one to lecture five still show up for lecture five. And we know that in a MOOC, it's like, you know, 7%. Right. So automatically I knew that I was getting much higher engagement and I could then look at, and then the other benefit of MBTs is sometimes you can just look at data, right? Lots of scientific experiments, by the way, as everyone here knows, but maybe you forget, are just literally people looking at data, historical data, and then reanalyzing them and running, uh, you know, our, our, our not test, or sorry, our, 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 our square tests on this data, you know, it's, it's simple correlation testing. And so, you can do the same thing with CVCs. I did this and I went around and asked a bunch of CVC producers like what their metrics were, right? Mm-hmm. And I started to get a sense of, oh shoot, like collectively these metrics are really good. Like these people are making a ton of money 
And their customers seem to like them a lot more than the customers of, of uh, video-based courses. So these are versions of MVTs that I ran early on that did not give me the whole picture. I didn't know when I was figuring out whether CBCs were successful, I had no idea building software for course instructors was going to be a good business. That's a much broader sort of multifaceted question. I was just asking, answering one question because it was one of the higher risk hypotheses. Well, a, core, a, a marketplace for CBCs would never work if CBCs weren't good, right? So I had to figure that out first. In your case, you were able to figure out the highest risk hypothesis and then sort of go test it out. But as a standard framework, how does one pick that bit, right? How do you go after figuring out what is the highest risk in what you intend to build? Yeah, you know, honestly, I think it's just about being honest with yourself because I think most people could answer this question if they weren't they weren't bullshitting themselves and weren't so wow. sure of themselves about certain things. True. I don't think this is a hard question, mm-hmm. but I think being honest with yourself is hard. So you can just like look at any situation and discuss with five people, like literally any five really, really smart people and ask them, hey, what do you think the highest risk is of this business to fail? Write all of the ideas down. Doesn't matter if they're the highest one or not. Write all the ideas down. I've literally done this many times with startups. We'll go on a whiteboard and say, what could make this fail? What could make this fail? Write all the ideas down. And then you just have to rank order which ones are the highest chance of turning this startup idea uh, upside down. And that exercise is very easy if you're honest. And the only thing that happens that happens to people is people put their um, subjectivity into it. So they'll say things like, I am sure this is true. It's like, doesn't matter what you think. This is about what would an average person who's looking at this situation think. And if you can give yourself that pause of separation from what you believe to what an average person might believe, then you'll probably figure out what the highest risk hypotheses are. I feel like even at that stage, right, you can, for example, even with Maven, like you could pro- probably test it out maybe with five creators, 10 creators, right? But at some point, I think the question that you would have is that's a very small sample set, right? That's, is that enough to conclude that this is the way to de-risk my company, my idea? Uh, h- how do you think about that, right? Which is Spoken like FYI. a Series A investor. <laughs> Just FYI, I've been a product person most of my career. So engineer and she, then she, a product she's person. She's now gone over to the dark side, as I always tell I, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't poking fun at the lack of operating experience, Harsha. I was just saying that that you only get that amount of data later in, in a company anyways. And That's so, yeah. so, you know, I don't believe in sample size. I think it's one of the most overrated parts of like science in general is mm. the idea that you, and I think that of course, when you're deciding whether or not a COVID vaccine is successful, like I would like to use sample, like I would like to have a really yeah. big sample size, like obviously, right? Like no, no question there. Um, yeah. But when you go from hard science to soft science, things change. Yeah. And uh, you can't even with really, really high sample sizes say anything with significant accuracy anyways. So yeah. uh, soft science is, you know, uh, hard science in tech is uh, what is the conversion rate on this landing page? Fine. That yeah. better, more sample size, better, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But soft science is, hey, do people love my product? And will people love my product? Yeah. Actually, greater sample size doesn't really help. 
Okay, because for a bunch of reasons, um, one is that usually you only have a small group of people who actually like your product in the beginning anyways, and you have to grow that group. And so therefore, actually, a big sample size might just muddy the waters and give you more negative feedback than what is true, because yeah. your goal is not actually to find lots of people. Um, yeah. Uh, other other problems with large sample sizes are that you you can almost never get to a sample size that truly represents a population anyways. And so mm-hmm. like uh, like you can, but you have to get to really big scale and marketing's really hard. And so you know you're you're never gonna get there unless you are already successful, basically. Yeah. And so yeah. Um, and then finally, it becomes a huge crutch. So questions of scientific veracity are it actually counter counter um, to success in the early days of startups. You often find people who are looking at data. How many times have you seen a pitch deck, Harsha, from a company that's like, oh, our growth rate was 500% in the last year. <laughs> Dude, you had 10 customers in January. I don't give a shit if your growth rate is 500%. That is completely irrelevant. Or, yeah. hey, our conversion rate is 60%. Well, if eight people saw the landing page, that's again, irrelevant. So <laughs> yeah. um, you have to use intuition in the early days and actually you should yeah. use it. And so actually I think five is a is the sample size I almost always use. I don't need more than five for any major decision that I make pretty yeah. much. Um, I, I th- almost yeah. all decisions about customers can be answered by five interviews. As long as I think that they're representative of a potential audience and I just have to make that determination and my determination is gonna be better than scientific math anyways. But how do you pick the right set of people? I have a vision for what I want, what business I want to build, right? So at at Maven, we want to build a business where the best people in the world are teaching online courses so that people all over the world can learn from the best best instructors. And so best is a critical uh, factor there. Defining best is important. I I define best as as you, Anshumani. I define best as you, Harsha. People who are in the field, who have experience, who've been PNs. You should be teaching the next generation of PNs. So I defined a target customer that would create a big business. I think it's very easy for me to find a target customer that would not represent a big business, right? Hmm. An example of a target customer that today is really excited about Maven, but we can't we can't help is people who are up and coming. And up and coming is good. Uh, people who do not have a likelihood, do not have enough credibility to build an audience in a field and do not have enough credibility to teach people, but think they do. That's actually a really big market. There's a lot of people out there. And if we were, you know, had a business model like Teachables or, or, um, I imagine there's an Indian version of Teachable, but I, I don't know. But if we had a business model that was more SaaS-based, where we made money solely off of people buying our product and not actually being successful, then I think it would be very easy for us to go after that target customer. But in this context, I had to test it with people who I thought could build a big business because we are taking a revenue share and we cannot make money if you aren't successful. Like we literally watch your numbers like all the time. Like I know your numbers. I know what your conversion rates are. And I've looked at them and because I care about your success. Yeah, I know. I was just uh, thinking about the points you made. And I feel like um, the more I think about MVT, it feels that it's almost um, critical to do that so that you're you're building the right MVP, right? Like you will end up building something 
potentially irrelevant if you've not first tested out you know what your risks are you've not you've not tested out what your customers want what they care about what will create the most impact for them and then maybe you go out and still build out an mvp and not a full fledged product but it's almost like a precursor to make sure you're building the right thing exactly yeah i mean we're just we're just sharpening the pencil further and further and further on how to build a startup right so let's yeah. be clear you can build a great startup without knowing what product market fit is like we we did it like our company's going public tomorrow right like like that's that happens and by the way google was built well before anybody knew mm. what the hell product market fit was right like yeah. yahoo was built before then um and and probably even i mean flipkart was built before then right you have lots of companies that were built before uh pmf even existed and so mvps yeah. then existed and people started to build mvps and startups got better i mean we we now have way more successful startups than we did in the past and my view is that mvps is just one more addition into adding more to this philosophy of how to build startups that yeah. is not required you could just build an mvp and be successful but i think it'll increase your your rate of success if you use the mvt framework so that's why i added it in there yeah awesome. and you could almost do like multiple pivots with mvts rather than building a product and then keep pivoting yeah. you could just keep testing out and then when you're ready go out with an mvp and i think that's a, that's an incredible learning because we do often see founders or um you know first time founders especially when you have an idea you have an instinct and you're a builder already so your instinct is to go and build right away um and it's almost saying just hold back pull back a little bit and and test it out and moving away from uh from product building to ideating phase right and you've written a lot about that as well um and you you speak about sort of being a bum and you yourself sort of spent i think what two three years figuring out your your latest idea um i'm um you know as i was reading about it the the question on my mind was like it's so easy to get lost right it's so easy when when you give yourself that freedom to say hey i'm going to take a year or two years or whatever just to figure out what i want to work on and the framework is beautiful i'd love it if you could summarize it for our audience today so please do that um but i think the, i think the question that i want to get to is how do you not get lost how do you know when to move away from an idea uh and how do you know when to keep pushing i do think it's easy to get lost and you know in india because cost of living is so so low there are a lot and you can live with your parents it's actually i would say very different from america in that in america once you hit 18 you're you have a fire under your ass for like the financial fire is very real you have to make money to survive really and and in india because you can stay with your parents and because it is more socially acceptable to take especially for wealthier people honestly to take a little bit of time to figure out what's next I've noticed a lot of my cousins do this um i think you can go in the other direction so to some extent my writing might be a little bit different if i was writing solely for an indian audience and i'm writing for a global audience but um solely for an indian audience which is that you know I do think still that that time is a luxury and that people who can take it will get a lot of value out of it um but you do have to have a natural tendency to end up at the right spot and a lot of people don't do that so what I mean by that is 
if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be the type of person who would go and be a bum. And just because everyone knows who you are and knows that you're the type of person who would do this, you would naturally end up at doing something interesting. If you're not that, this strategy probably doesn't work, but you also probably shouldn't be an entrepreneur. So the type of person who gets lost during this time period to me and never finds their way back or ends up is is totally the type of person who should realize like, hey, I just went and I was a bum and I didn't have a desire to go back and do something. I didn't come up with ideas naturally. I didn't like, and that's just a sign that maybe you should do something else. And maybe the ideas that you were coming up with were you were walking around the art galleries in Mumbai and you were, ta- you were thinking about how, wow, why the hell are over 50% of our artists in Mumbai talking about uh, politics, which by the way is true. Uh, I spent a bunch of time studying art in (laughs) Mumbai and it was freaking annoying. Like they had, and they have really, really basic versions of what they think. By the way, this is true in art galleries all over the world. So this is not a Mumbai problem, but like, you know, well, you know, if you're the type of person who spends their time off and ends up getting really excited about this and says, well, I want to start an art gallery that's more modern and really is moving art forward rather than doing the political tropes i would love to you know and and then you start an art gallery or if you're the type of person who goes and spends all their time you know thinking about uh product management and you end up looking at bigger products at bigger companies and you're never looking at the early stage stuff like go get a job as a product manager like so i think that being a bum for the sake of becoming an entrepreneur would be pretty uh, silly because it presumes that you should be an entrepreneur and everyone should just be some whatever they they are naturally suited to be right i mean both of you are incredibly successful and people i i respect from afar of course you know we haven't we haven't worked together but but i respect from afar and both of you are not entrepreneurs however you're extremely successful in your own right and have found something that really fits for both of you, it seems like. I mean, it seemed very natural in your in your state. And why should that be any better or worse than than me being natural in my state? So mm-hmm. I would say that I would say that that's how I think about being a bum um, in a more metaphysical sense. And then on a very specific sense, it's it's business, user, and market. So when you're actually exploring ideas, you want to get to know other people in the industry so you can understand how the industry works. That's business. Uh, user is, you want to spend time with your user. This is one people often forget, but like hang out with your user, have drinks with your user, go to a club with your user, like spend time getting to know them in a psychological way and not just in a like user interview, like let me ask you questions sort of way. And then market, um, spend time, in the broader market and understand right like what is happening in this industry over time and you know those are the three different ideas by the way my business one i think i said that wrong and what i mean is just general business not specific to a market um and so that's the bum framework but yeah i think the real lesson here is that the only way to come up with ideas is to allow yourself creative time and creative time by nature is unstructured and kind of scary yeah we could uh we move on to audience questions now 
as a first time founder of a consumer tech company how should fundraising be planned and maybe this can tie into the question that came up earlier in our discussion gagan which is you know until you have pmf you know how how do you manage this whole investor role fundraising role yeah so couple comments so so i'll give you the stages of this the first stage which is the stage everyone screws up the most which is uh you should fundraise only when you're almost guaranteed to successfully fundraise so you should push off your fundraise as much as humanly possible now of course you know you may not have money to get to the next stage da 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 like there are reasons why people have to fundraise earlier but you should really push that off as much as possible until you have a value proposition to investors that is really attractive so you've proven the mvps or you have a working mvp that's successful that is getting traction um as or you're already kind of a well-known quantity so you know i looked at your background before you became a, a vc harsha and obviously you know being a, a pm at at ola is going to give you credibility amongst investors and maybe they would have invested in you if you were starting a company just because of that. So either you want to have that you have that kind of background or you've been an entrepreneur before, right? That was my experience at Maven but not at Udemy and not really even at Sprig if I'm being honest. Um and you know, or you have to have traction, but you need to meet that basic criteria of are you an investable founder are you someone and most people don't ever ask themselves that question it's kind of amazing actually how often people just go and say hey i'm raising money for this thing it's like okay why oh because i need money like no investor gives a shit whether you need money or not like that is irrelevant investors care about whether or not you're going to make them money and so you need to figure out whether they want to that like you're attracted to them so that's the first step So wait as long as possible until then. Once you're at the point where you have a uh investable business, the next step is to start building and this is probably like 2 to 3 months out from actually fundraising is to start building a group of supporters who who love you. And these are supporters who have the ear of investors and know other investors or are investors themselves and maybe they write smaller checks like 10 or or 20k checks as opposed to 100 200k checks and you want to have supporters and so you need to go and find them and build relationships with those people don't start fundraising yet don't ask them for money if someone offers you money say hey we're gonna fundraise in the future i love that you're excited can i put you down for this but only when we start fundraising the reason being that once you start fundraising it's a full-time job for you mm-hmm. so you want to mentally keep that away and then also because other people it, it is a forcing function of credibility if you are only fundraising when you're actually fundraising so if you tell people you're fundraising or you start taking money or people notice that you're doing things that are fundraising like like you have a deck for example well you're fundraising and you're kind of lying to me so like now i know that you're not someone who's going to be very rigid and truthful about everything. And by the way, that's 95% of people and and people fundraise successfully anyways. But if you can, you know, honesty is your best friend during fundraising because how do you win a negotiation if you can't uh essentially like if you can't be believed? So you get to the point where you're going to fundraise and then I literally line up like 5 to 10 meetings in a week or two with my target 
investors. And I try to cram them into as short a period as possible. Usually it happens to be two weeks, not one week. And I usually meet my first set of investors are usually a little bit more practice. And then my second set of investors are a little bit more serious that I have a little bit of practice. And I'll pitch everyone at once. And remember, I usually wait like quite a bit until I start fundraising, until I believe that the company is really investable and it's very easy to invest in. So I'm usually already at a point now where it's very, um, it's, it's a very solid pitch. Yeah. And then you pitch investors. And so this structure, then what happens is while I'm raising money, I'm telling everyone, hey, I'm, I just started raising money. It's only been a couple of days. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then yeah. you're at week two and you're like, oh, there's, I'm having a bunch of second meetings, but we're still at second meetings. Don't worry. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I've told them, oh, I'm now week three and oh, I'm on third meetings. And it looks like there's a few firms that are starting to get serious. Like it would be great if you told me if you were one of them, then someone will always move to the front of the pack and say, oh, I want to, let's, let's do a partner meeting. And then everyone else, you tell everyone else, oh, this person did a partner meeting. And then they're like, okay, they have to shit or get off the pot so that they decide, am I going to do a partner meeting or not? And then at some point you have all your partner meetings in one day because you've sort of built credibility over this whole process. And that's how I view all negotiations. So when hiring people, I build credibility by being honest throughout the entire process and then doing exactly what I say I'm going to do. It's an incredibly surprisingly rare skill uh, or habit. It's not a skill. It's not hard to do, but... You just have to believe that it's important. And that's how I I believe in fundraising. And I think for first-time founders, the same thing works just fine. I've seen dozens of people employ this and and successfully fundraise from it. Um, But you need traction, maybe. I mean, you just have to deal with that. Like, I can't solve that problem for you. On that note, where we started with relentlessness, and I think we've ended with relentlessness, that the only way to sort of continue down this path is to, you know, be unrelenting and sort of keep going and keep backing yourself. Gagan, thank you so much for your time uh, today. Uh, wonderful insights for everyone uh, on this fireside chat. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all. Thanks thanks to the great, great moderation by both of you and uh, for having this great group together. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gagan. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining in to listen to this episode of Path to PMF. Follow the story on Twitter and LinkedIn. Until next time.